Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Please follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So, then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For if even there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. This is the word of the Lord. You know, we can't escape it. It's everywhere. And even when you try not to look for it, you can't help but be confronted by it. And no, I'm not talking about uh, COVID, even though we're reminded of that everywhere by masks and physical distancing. And no, I'm not talking about racism and, and division, but that's just as real too. What I meant to refer to was the 2020 election. And no, I'm not talking about the fly. Can you believe that was just only five days ago? In the final run, candidates are attempting to reach out to voters to tip the scales in their favor. And we as voters have a great responsibility. First is to go and vote. But as important as voting itself is, it's also voting according to our values and consciences. Regardless of where you land on the political spectrum, your conscience will cause you to see some priorities as more important than others. Perhaps it's the economy or healthcare and COVID response or Supreme Court appointments, climate change, police reform, LGBTQ rights, immigration reform, ethnicity, and religious diversity of the candidates that you see. Now, we live in a pluralistic society where people hold different social, religious, and political viewpoints that inform their views on the world and what is important to them. And each of our values informs the kind of rules or the laws that we think are important for a flourishing society. And sometimes those values can be in competition. 
When we live in this kind of pluralistic society where our values are not necessarily shared by everyone else, what are the rules for rules? What are the rules that we use to make the rules that we live by? Now, I'm stepping into a bit of territory here in a town that has the highest concentration of lawyers, trained lawyers in the nation. I know I stand to be corrected. So uh, I believe the area of study is called the philosophy of law or jurisprudence, where people consider the role of law and how it is applied to help a community function. Now, it's an area of study that goes back many, many uh, centuries, uh, back to ancient Egypt. And the essence of it is uh, of looking at what are moral principles and what are legal principles that inform the kind of laws that we make. For instance, there is immoral principles which are immediately connected to a, a moral principle, which is murder is wrong because human life is valuable. And so therefore we make laws like uh, prohibiting homicide and manslaughter and delineating between those. And then there's legal principles where there's an indirect method of applying a general moral principle that into specific circumstances that helps us facilitate human relationships. That's why there's no moral principle for whether you drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. What is inferred from that, there's indirect principles that, that say, you know, managing traffic in a way that, doesn't, that everyone can expect is good for everyone and doesn't risk injuring others. And so they come up with legal uh, uh, definitions of whether to drive on the right side or the left side of the road. Now, in today's text, though Paul does not use the same categories, we discover another principle to apply to these food laws that the Corinthian church was struggling with. We heard it in the children's story, and we heard it in the text that was just read. When considering how to follow a law, Paul speaks to this framework of conscience, to knowledge, and of love. Conscience, knowledge, and love. So we're going to walk through how this framework informs how we might apply particular rules and expectations as a faith community here at WCF and beyond. Our consciences serve as an inner feeling or a voice that guides us in determining whether a behavior is right or wrong. And conscience is often what we apply to new situations that we are confronted with, that where we don't immediately know the answer. It's that instinct that I think all of us have experienced. Maybe it's like, that instinct that kicks in when we're about to click on a link that's questionable on our browser. Or maybe it's that instinct that causes us to bite our tongues when, we, when we're about to say something that we probably will regret. Now, Paul opens in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 saying, Now, about food sacrificed to idols. Paul turns to address this ag- disagreement of the Corinthian church over Jewish food purity laws. For Jews, there were this host of food laws that determined whether Jews would be considered ceremonially unclean or ceremonially clean. These were the ways that God used uh, since the giving of the law in the Old Testament to distinguish Jews from Gentiles who were always considered unclean. These laws continue today in Jewish kosher laws, such as refraining from eating pork or certain cuts of meat and, and shellfish. And at the Jerusalem Council, recorded in Acts chapter 15, several years before this letter to the Corinthians, Jewish Christ followers were trying to figure out how these laws applied to Gentile believers who are now joining the synagogue. 
at the council, the apostles gathered and concluded that Gentile Christians should abstain from eating meat sacrificed to idols. That was their ruling at the council. Now, in Corinth, there were some Gentile believers who are now uh, who, who joined the church, and they recognized that idols were not real gods. And so, if they're not real, then this restriction to eat meat sacrificed to them didn't make sense to them. Their consciences informed them that eating meats, meat sacrificed to idols was fine, since idols weren't real. But there were consciences of other members of the Corinthian church that were disturbed by these actions. You see, the issue of eating meat was more than a diet choice like it is for us today. In cities like Corinth, food sold in markets was in, intricately tied to the temple worship and it was part of the city's economy. During seasons of feasts, many worshipers would come to the city. They would go to the markets and buy their animals and take these animals to the temple to be sacrificed. And the priests would conduct the sacrifice and they would keep a portion for themselves to eat. And what they couldn't eat, they would sell back in through the markets next to the temples. And so during times of feast, there was lots of meat available and that would make it affordable for poorer people who maybe that was the only time that they could eat meat. Now in the Corinthian church, there was a clash of consciences regarding this new situation. For a law that once exclusively applied to Jews, they needed to sort out, how do you apply it now to these Gentile Christians that were now joining the church. Now, some had consciences that were saying, it's okay to eat meat. And others had consciences that said, no, it's wrong to eat meat. So how did Paul resolve the matter? Now, we know that he just came back from this council and they made a ruling. And Paul could have said, Barnabas and I just chatted about this. We were at the council and per statement of the Jerusalem council, paragraph B, subsection 4, 2.1. Y'all should not be eating meat sacrificed to idols, so just quit it. Yet, he doesn't do that here. He doesn't appeal to a ruling and tell the Corinthian church to fall in line. But neither does he say, just do as your conscience informs you. Instead, Paul invites the Corinthian church to reflect on how their knowledge informs their conscience. Verse eight, Chapter 8, verse 1, he goes, Now, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. What was this knowledge that informed some of the Corinthians? So then, about in verse 4, about food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. If you quickly scan the chapter and count the number of words in this chapter that refer to know or to knowledge, it shows up 10 times in the NIV translation. Now, some knew that meat sacrificed to idols, what that meant. And some didn't know. And then Paul continues to say, knowledge easily puffs up. You see, knowledge can easily create pride and arrogance. And there, those who are more informed on this issue could easily look down on those who are less informed. And that shows up in our world today. Those who are more informed about racism can look down upon the people who deny that racism exists. Those who understand the science of COVID transmission or believe in it can look down on those who don't believe in COVID. Those who are more informed about climate change science can look down on those who deny climate change. And those who have friends that have been abused or who are sexual minorities can look down on those who don't have friends in those uh, demographics. 
Those who have theological training or who are more well-read can look down on those who aren't. Now the question is, what knowledge is most true that informs our consciences and helps us remain humble? Martin Luther, who officially sparked the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century by nailing 95 theses to the door of a Wittenberg church, he gave this testimony when he was called before the Catholic church leaders. He says this, it's coming up on the screen. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Luther here appeals to two sources that inform his moral conviction. First, that truth rests in scriptures. And second, that his conscience is bound by what he understood scriptures to say. He goes on to suggest that our consciences are to be molded and shaped by the testimony of scripture and not by men's opinion. And in this specific case of these 95 theses, one of the core issues he took issue with, uh, to, uh, that he had a problem with was the Catholic Church's uh, use of indulgences, which were payments to the Catholic Church in order to reduce the penalty of your sin. Now, he viewed those as simply opinions of men that caused great injustice to believers and violated, in fact, the gospel of Christ's sacrifice for all sinners. It's Christ's payment that satisfies the penalty for our sins, not our payment to the church. For Luther, his conscience was bound to the word of God and the word of God alone. Now, in high school, I remember doing a unit on navigation and learning to use a compass. And I really liked the idea of using a compass to navigate, but I was never very successful at it. It required not only knowledge of how to read a map and how to use a compass, but also an awareness of what might disturb the compass's accuracy. I learned that the compass had to be parallel to the ground, otherwise the needle would get stuck when it's trying to rotate. And that a strong magnet close to the compass could distort its detection of true north. In fact, prolonged exposure to magnetic sources could actually permanently reorient the compass's sensitivity and render it faulty. You know, our consciences are like a magnetic compass. They guide us almost instinctively, but like a compass, they can be easily disturbed by local magnetic fields that may or may not be an accurate reflection of true north. Now, this distortion of direction can lead us away from where we want to go and perhaps where God calls us to go. Sometimes our conscience works to bother us internally about an action or a moral decision that we have made. And it turns out that our assumptions or information about that decision was incomplete. We didn't know all the information, but our consciences led us in the right direction. That's the work of God's Spirit through our consciences, pointing us in the right direction. But there are other times where we often believe ourselves to have clear consciences. I, my conscience is clear with this matter, but it's based on incomplete information or wrong thinking, and particularly about Scripture. And in some cases, our consciences may lead us in the wrong direction. 
And when we are confronted with some new information or viewpoints that challenge our assumptions, we must proceed with humility, saying, what is it that I don't know here? What am I missing here? Or is what I'm being presented with untrue? You know, as Christ followers, our consciences can be influenced by Scripture and by opinions and by the world around us. And our task is to humbly inquire about how God and how God's Word informs our opinions and our consciences. You know, as important as accurate knowledge is for Paul, we find that knowledge here isn't the primary guiding principle for our consciences. It's very important, but it's not the primary guiding principle. The rule for rules isn't just having the right knowledge for Paul in this chapter. It's about how we apply those rules for the sake of others. Verse 1 again. Now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we, we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. For Paul, the rule for rules is love. And specifically, a kind of love that builds other people up rather than tear them down. You know, in verse 9 to 12, we're told, be careful. And the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. It's the opposite of building up. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Life as a Corinthian involved going to temples to offer sacrifices and then sharing in a meal together at the temple using the meat sacrificed to the gods. And for a newer Corinthian Christian, they might be concerned about this kind of behavior. Am I not ingesting the God into my own life when I eat this meat, sacrificed to a God? Much like they were reminded with, uh, minded of every time they gathered for the Lord's Supper at the synagogue. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you. This, for those who have stronger cons- consciences, they might see a fellow Christian uh, believer was stronger, or no, for those with weaker consciences, they might see a, a, a fellow sister or brother with a stronger conscience going to other temples or to eat the meat sacrificed in these other temples and say, well, if they can do it, so then I can do it and fall back into idolatry because they didn't have sufficient knowledge or their consciences were weak. Or their conscience may have told these newer believers uh, and caused anxiety in, the, in them, thinking, what, what would this God think? that I no longer worship, but now I'm, I, I'm going to eat meat sacrificed to them and this God is going to be uh, angry with me and, and curse me and make me sick because I no longer worship this God, but yet I'm eating meat sacrificed to this God. Their consciences, even though that didn't make sense, uh, according to the gospel, they might think that way. I see the freedom of those with a stronger conscience would be a stumbling block for those with weaker consciences. You know, Paul calls the stronger in faith to build up others in love, and particularly those weaker in faith. And this kind of love that Paul refers to has a particular nature. It's not just love anyone and love anything, because that's not really love. That's well-wishing, that's respect, 
but it's not necessarily love. Love conveys an element of sacrifice for the sake of the other. In the case of the Corinthians, love that builds up is to put a weaker sister or brother before yourself, before your freedom. And for those who have weaker consciences regarding eating meat, restraining yourself when you're together with them so that their consciences aren't burdened, even their conscience, even though their conscience might be informed by incomplete knowledge. Love them in a way that they might come to know the truth. Love is to take what you know and not wield it against another person, even though you may be correct and even though you may be right, but to sacrifice your freedom for the welfare and the service of a weaker sister or brother. And when it comes to certain practices, when we are unwilling to accommodate our actions for the sake of a fellow Christian and a fellow human being, it's perhaps a sign that one is in fact not a stronger person, but a weaker brother or sister. That's why Paul says in 8 verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. For Paul, the issue is not just whether you're doing things with a clear conscience or whether you are doing things with the right knowledge or even whether your actions are physically or psychologically harmful to someone else. But it's whether your knowledge and your actions might adversely affect the consciences of others and sin against the body of Christ. That's the rule for rules. It's loving and caring for the consciences of our sisters and brothers. You know, and that's a high rule. For individualistic Americans concerned about our rights and our freedoms to do what we want and no one to tell us what to do, this seems really counterintuitive. How do we get to this place of loving and serving others in this way? The answer we find is in verse 3. For whoever loves God is known by God. Whoever loves God is known by God. In this text, there are nine instances of the word know or knowledge. And two of them are paired with love. Here in this verse and the verse right before where we say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, many of us here are very smart, well-educated. We have a fair amount of knowledge. But we often do not know as we ought to know. You see, the key to knowledge that loves is not what we know, but is knowing that we are known by God. The question isn't whether you have a clear conscience or whether you have the correct knowledge. To move towards true love of God and of the other, we must first ask ourselves, is our pursuit of truth, is our pursuit of knowledge about God paired with love for God and to be known by God? You know, that's a fundamental longing for all humans to be seen, to be recognized, to be known as we are, and to be loved. And to be loved by someone and seen as we are and not be rejected because of our hang-ups and our brokenness is really vulnerable. If we know anything to be true, at least I know, I've come to know for myself, it's that we all have hang-ups and brokenness. No matter how far along we are, in our relationship with God. Yet what do we do when we come before the living God who knows everything about us, the good, the bad, and the ugly parts? What do we do with that feeling? That's really vulnerable. The Christian story tells us something very unique. You don't have to come 
all cleaned up and have your life sorted out before God will have a relationship with you, before God desires to know you. And that's really good news. You see, when you come before Jesus, you realize that you are far more weak, far more broken, and far more insecure than we really want to acknowledge. But we also find that coming before Jesus, that we are far more loved than we could ever imagine. Because Jesus pays the price for our brokenness on the cross. In God's love, we aren't left there in our sin, in our brokenness. God lovingly mends us and makes us whole when we humbly submit all of ourselves before God. At a church I previously served at, Julie and I were invited to a meal hosted by the family of a church member. And though they did not have a Jewish heritage, this particular family had discovered great meaning in following Jewish traditions, their calendars and food laws and meals, like the Passover meal, as an expression of their love for God. They didn't eat any shellfish, and they cooked their meat well done because of the old, their understanding of the Old Testament food law. And as we shared this meal with them, we enjoyed conversation and food, and many scriptures were read as the meal proceeded through several courses. And as I inquired about the significance or of these practices and was encouraged by their desire to integrate their worship of God in such a tangible way through this meal. Yet my impression was that they really hoped that I would too would embrace this same practice because through our conversation, they seemed to feel that Christians had lost their true essence of faith by failing to appreciate these Jewish traditions that informed Christianity. And to fail to worship God in this manner was, in their mind, an incomplete worship of God. According to their consciences, they felt it was important to embrace all the rituals and the feasts and the calendars of the Jewish faith. In fact, at the expense of spurning Easter and Christmas and other events in the Christian calendar in order to be more faithful to God. And as Julia and I left the meal, we reflected on that evening. We felt that though they professed faith in Jesus, their actions and their values implied that adhering to Jewish traditions were required as a sign of a true love for God. And in my mind, it seemed like it was the gospel plus. Gospel plus Jewish practices were required for them to be known by God. And it challenged me to think about the things I hold as important in the expression of my love for God. And whether those are adding to the gospel as a sign of me being known by God. I think we're all inclined to do gospel plus. We may all claim to believe in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but our values and our actions imply that other beliefs may even be more important to measure the sincerity or the quality of our own love or the quality and the love of a sister or brother in Christ. You know, Paul's encouragement to the Corinthian church is an encouragement to us here at WCF. Amidst our diversity, we may not agree completely on specific social or political issues. What is most important as we gather as a community is not just that we have a clear conscience about a matter or that we have the right knowledge or the right theology, but holding our knowledge and holding our conscience in loving ways that do not burden the consciences of others. And that requires relationship. That requires love and understanding. The path to this kind of other-seeking love 
and humility comes only through the loving God and being known by God with all of our being. May you find comfort in that beautiful, life-changing truth so that we might love one another in such a winsome way that brings more broken, more wounded, and probably more hypocritical people into our midst to know the love of God. Amen.